Last week on Licensed to Parent, our guest Alex McFarland helped parents understand what we need to do to help start changing our culture for the good. The early church prevailed, yes, because the gospel is true, because they were willing to die for the faith. But what happened was Christians built great families. Christians gave an honest day's work, and men married women and had children and adopted children. And Christianity turned the world upside down on the strength of family, morals, and just personal excellence. We can do this again. This week, we're going to learn more about defending our faith next Unlicensed to Parents. Hi, I'm glad you joined us for another episode of Licensed to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherds Hill Academy. Shepherds Hill is a year-long Christ-centered residential program for teens in crisis. Our host, Trace Embry, is the founder and executive director of Shepherds Hill and also the author of The Miracles of Shepherds Hill. I'm Michelle Hill. Our goal on Licensed to Parent is to take what we're learning each day at Shepherds Hill and share it with you so that you can be better prepared to raise your kids in a way that honors God. Alex McFarland joins us again today. And of course, we just appreciate his wisdom and his stand for truth. Alex speaks worldwide and is known as a Christian apologist, author, and evangelist. Uh, he's known for his stand on religion and culture, being an analyst and also defender of faith. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Well, Alex, in our last broadcast, uh, you made the statement, the Word of God, the Bible, is our authority. Uh, today, we need to address two common questions that kids often bring up. Which God? Which Bible? Since the advent of the internet, parents are now forced to answer theological questions that only seasoned theologians ever had to feel just a couple of decades ago. So let's start with the Bible. Uh, before we can ask how we know the Bible is what it claims to be, don't we have to deal with the fact that Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Church all use different Bibles? How do we reconcile this? You know, they, they use different Bibles in the sense of um, maybe different notes or some of the supplemental material, and sometimes different translations. You know, uh, one of the predominant translations of the English-speaking world has been the King James Bible. Uh, and then, you know, the uh, Catholic Bibles the, come from uh, something called the Latin Vulgate. And then, you know, uh, th there have been... <laughs> countless translations in recent years, uh, but they come from the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And while, yes, a translation is a word exchange where you, you know, try to put, uh, you trade one word for a more understandable word, they really don't say different things. I mean, uh, you know, any document could be translated from what's called the donor language to the recipient language. But, um, you know, I interviewed a, a scholar, Stephen Prothero, who um, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he was um, documenting how Christianity has an amazingly unified message that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins. So um, I, I really don't see that there's a problem in the fact that there have been many attempts to put the, the, the Word of God in more and more accessible 
uh, language groups. And so while, yes, there are different Bible translations, a remarkably unified message. Believe me, with the Internet, these kids have got a lot of information, a lot of it false information. Uh, but we talk about Bible inerrancy. Uh, you know, one, I want to ask you what Bible inerrancy is for our listeners' sake. And then uh, it does go beyond translation because there are entire extra books in the Catholic Bible. There are things that our Bible as a Protestant doesn't have that the Catholics do. And then the Orthodox have a uh, slightly different version, but um, how can any of these Bibles be considered inerrant uh, after you tell us what inerrancy is without indicting the other two? Can they all be inerrant at the same time? Uh, great question. When we talk about biblical inerrancy, and by the way, this is a great topic because, do you know, about 40 years ago, there was a, a, a meeting in Chicago called the Chicago uh, Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And um, I would encourage people to, to research that. There were some of the greatest scholars like uh, the late Norm Geisler, mm. uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul, F.F. Mm. Uh, Bruce, and, and many others. And one of the things that, that R.C. Sproul said is that biblical inerrancy and biblical authority are things that have to be restated in every generation. And, and our generation, again, and I'm talking even to ministers, we need to remind people that, yes, the Bible is the Word of God, and yes, the Bible is authoritative. But when we speak of biblical inerrancy, we're talking about what's called the autographa, the original documents, uh, the Genesis through Malachi of the Old Testament, Matthew through Revelation of the New Testament. Now, it is possible to either accidentally or intentionally change in a translation. Uh, for instance, the, uh, there have been some cults that added things, but, but that doesn't diminish the fact that, that God has spoken. The ancient Jews were very meticulous about the preservation of what they call the scriptures. You know, like in John 539, when Jesus said, search the scriptures for they testify of me. What he meant by that was what you and I would call the Old Testament. And then in John 14, 26 and 27, Jesus told his disciples, he said, the Holy Spirit will remind you of all things whatsoever I have told you. So Christ affirmed the old and he made provision for the new. And so we are on good, solid ground when we look at the Bible, the totality of Matthew through uh, Revelation, the New Testament is the word of God as well. Now, speaking of adding to um, the Catholic Bibles contain some books called the Apocrypha that were not added until after the Protestant Reformation. And some of it, there was kind of a, an agenda to speak against some of the teachings of the Protestant Reformation. But let me say without, we don't have time to get too deep into the weeds on that because they're even, like I, I've done biblical worldview seminars twice by invitation in a Roman Catholic church. And the priest uh, freely said to me, he said, you know, many, many of the Catholic priests believe Martin Luther and the Reformers were right. Sola fide, salvation by faith, sola scriptura, you know, scripture alone. And so um, we still have the gospel, which is the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. And, and so I, what I counsel youth, because frankly, 
99% of all teenagers don't have the attention span to get into a lengthy treatise on the preservation of the biblical manuscripts. I'll say, look, uh, yeah, different denominations have supplemental material they've added in their Bibles for good or for bad. But here's the point. The gospel is still the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for the sins of the world. And really what we believe about the gospel, how the Son of God paid our sin debt on the cross, not only is it in the Scripture, but it was being memorized, recited, circulated among the early church within four to six weeks after the cross. Oh, wow. That's a bombshell, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, f- within a month to two months after Calvary, the the basics of how to be saved were being spread verbally. So the 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, Philippians chapter 2, these are what are called creedal statements. And scholars acknowledge that the church knew the gospel, was sharing the gospel. They were being very careful to preserve the gospel within four to six weeks after Calvary. That's huge. And that same message we circulate and we believe today how the Son of God rose from the dead, that we could be saved. So Alex, can you just break this down? Because as I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking through it, I'm thinking of a mom who's frazzled and has three screaming kids in the back of her minivan. Why is what you're saying so important to her and how she is raising her children today? Great question. Several years ago, I had the privilege of writing a book called The 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids will ask about Christianity. And we did a video series, and it won an award, and I give God the glory. But, you know, I realize, believe me, that um, most most young parents are not sitting around, you know, when they've got, you know, uh, kids uh, all over the furniture, and they've got, you know, messes to clean up and bills to pay, and the average new mom is not saying, gee, I wonder how the papyra were (laughs) preserved in the first two centuries of the early church. Uh, Here's the thing, though. We found out that so many parents, and we interviewed personal interviews with more than 330 families with kids ages 5 to 12, childhood to pre-adolescence to young adolescents. We found out that a lot of parents needed, even Christian parents, They needed a little bit of remedial work themselves because, you know, the old thing, you can't give away what you don't have. So what I would say to moms and dads is um, make sure of your own relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, know, make sure that there, there was a time and a place that you personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus. And then understand that part of the the joy and the responsibility, but, but it's a privilege. Part of the disciples' role is to be a, a follower, learning, growing, obeying, and it, it will happen. Don't feel like, oh my goodness, the day I've, I bring my first child home from the hospital, I better be a theologian that day. No, don't put that on yourself. But just understand, part of the disciple-making process, part of it is verbal knowledge, that we pass on. Mm. Part of it is that your kids see authenticity in your own life. 
I mean, some, some things we speak and teach, some things we role model. And, you know, if I could give two scriptures, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer. Mm-hmm. But also 1 Peter 2.15, mm-hmm. this is the will of God that by doing well, you will put to silence the arguments of foolish men. Mm-hmm. See, we've got a message, but we are messengers. And I think part of the, the most vital, lasting, pervasive teaching that we impart to our kids is that they see Jesus is real in our own lives. So, um, you know, learn, learn as much as you want to learn. And I believe in knowledge and learning. But um, what's going to change your kids' lives, too, is that they see it's authentic in, in the life and the daily reality of, of mom and dad. They want to see it's real in your life. Amen. Well, we're coming up on a break here, Alex. I want to just circle back and touch on inerrancy uh, when we come back one more time before we go forward. Our guest today on Licensed to Parent is Alex McFarland. Alex is the author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers and also author of 17 other books. We'll be back with more Licensed to Parent right after this. Hi folks, Trace Embry here, host of the Licensed to Parent broadcast and founder of Shepherd's Hill Academy. We've all heard about modern day miracles, mostly from mission fields. Frankly, I believed about half of them and experienced none of them until about 30 years ago. Christ truly became the Lord of my life. The Miracles of Shepherd's Hill is a book that wasn't written as much as it was recorded. It's the true story of how God used a handshake, my family's last $200, and our 30-year odyssey of bumper-to-bumper miracles to acquire a 60-acre farm that was used by the devil and turned it into a 250-acre globally recognized healing ministry for God. I want all people to know that Jesus Christ is still in the miracle-working business for those submitted to His word, will, and way, and who properly understand what faith truly is. The Miracles of Shepherd's Hill, an extraordinary odyssey of divine interventions by Trace Embry. Learn more at LicensedToParent.org. Your children are teens now. They're growing up and gaining independence. That's kind of the point of parenting, isn't it? You're raising future responsible adults, but they're not responsible adults yet. They may be able to do things on their own, but you still want to be able to contact them and you want to equip them for success. So you decide to get them a smartphone. But why a smartphone? For most people, that means 24-7 access to everything on the planet. And that's not wise, nor is it healthy. Digital addiction is prevalent these days. In fact, we see teens of all ages dealing with mental health and behavioral issues rooted in overuse of technology. Issues that affect health, wellness, ability to focus, performance in academics, and more. That's why at Licensed to Parent, we want you to choose a wise phone alternative instead of a smartphone. More information is available at LicensedToParent.org slash wisephone. Welcome back to Licensed to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherd's Hill Academy. Shepherd's Hill is a nature-based therapy program for teens in crisis. And today we are helping you, the parent, think through accurately defending the Word of God and teaching it to our children. Our guest is Alex McFarland. Well, Alex, before the break, uh, you alluded to the fact that inerrancy 
uh, comes from the original manuscript and not necessarily the translations that we have today. How should a parent respond when Junior says that the argument that only the original manuscripts are inerrant is actually a cop-out since nobody actually has them? Yeah, I think God probably in his providence saw that we don't have maybe the the original copy of Paul's letter to the church at Rome or you know Philippians because two things for one the the Middle East is very arid very dry look the church was under persecution and they they wrote on leaves papyra right. you know plant fiber that was dried in the sun and it was copied and recopied uh if we had and and by the way, we don't know. I mean, for all we know, of the the thousands and thousands of New Testament copies that exist, roughly around thirty thousand copies of the New Testament, and then we have nearly one million fragments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, an atheist that I debated even acknowledged that the the New Testament. It was Bart Ehrman, by the way. And Bart Ehrman acknowledged uh, one of the preeminent conservative scholars, Dr. Daniel Wallace, who's in Texas. Da- uh, Bart Ehrman's an atheist. Dan Wallace is a Bible-believing Christian. But they both acknowledge that what you have, Matthew through Revelation, is the absolutely preserved New Testament. Uh, even atheist scholars will acknowledge that. Uh, but here's the thing. For all we know, maybe one of the manuscripts that exist is the original. Yeah, we, but we don't know. Right, but here's the here here here's like you know I keep getting this pushback from a lot of kids. Um, what would be wrong in saying that you know what we have today aren't actually inerrant, but it's the closest thing that we're going to get, and and that and that there's no other document that's been more scrutinized on the face of the earth than the Bible, and and what we do have gives I don't you, maybe you can't say proof but certainly overwhelming evidence beyond a reasonable doubt why do we stick so diligently to the inerrant thing when people go to jail for evidence beyond a reasonable doubt I mean I would think that would be where we need to to go with that or, or am I off base there well I, I believe that we need to defend biblical inerrancy because the church ought to have the same view of Scripture that Jesus had. You know, I mean, if we say the Bible has the potential for error, then we're essentially saying that Jesus was wrong about his understanding of Scripture. Because, continue, I mean, John 10, 35, Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And, you know, uh, when we read like Psalm 119, I wrote, I wrote an entire book on Psalm 119, which is like this 176-verse tribute to the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God is perfect and pure. You know, uh, Psalm 33, 4 says, every word of the Lord is right and true. Well, either it is or it isn't, you know? So when we're talking about, you know, every word of the Lord being right and true, we're speaking of the original copies. Mm-hmm. Now, two things. You know, I think that if we said, oh, my goodness, you know, this is First Peter written by Peter, and if we had that object, I know human nature, we'd probably worship this object. We would venerate this object. 
You know, oh my goodness, you know, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, it's got Paul's mojo on it. Let's worship this object. And we're not to worship this piece of papyro, we're to worship Jesus Christ. So I think by design, God made it so that regarding the the copying and the the publication of his word, we, we don't know where the originals are. But but listen very carefully to this. While we don't know about the whereabouts of the original copy, we absolutely have the original content of the original copy. And I wrote about this in my book, Stand, Core Truths You Must Know for an Unshakable Faith. I wrote about this extensively in my the biggest, the best-selling book that I ever had was called The Ten Most Common Objections to Christianity and How to Effectively Answer Them. I also wrote about it in my book, The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing Ten Common Myths About Christianity. Here's the thing. We don't have the original copy, or if, if, if it's still in existence, we don't know for certain, but we absolutely, unequivocally, have the original content of the original copy. Therefore, the Bible you hold in your hand is as inspired as the original copy from which it was taken. And that all takes faith. Uh, But once we get settled about what the Bible actually is and uh, choose to put our faith in that document, regardless of which Bible you're reading, the claims of Jesus Christ in all of them uh, about himself are all the same, are they not? Well, Well, they are. Because, um, and, and, and this also relates to the uniqueness of Christianity, because world religions basically boil down to do's and don'ts. And Christianity is unique, I mean, for a lot of reasons. One, only Christianity has an empty tomb. But Jesus is the only religious figure who basically says, your eternity is contingent on what you do with me, the person. Mm-hmm. You know, in in John 6, where over and over Christ utters a phrase that no pious Jew would have even vocalized, he says, I am, I am. He quotes Exodus 3.14 and attributes that to himself, I am. And basically Jesus says, what you do with me will determine where you spend eternity. Right. And that is an absolutely unique claim. I mean, all of the r- religious leaders of the world have said, you know, do this, don't do that, believe this, don't believe that. But Jesus says, I mean, Matthew seven twenty one through 24, that if you want to not only be in heaven in the afterlife, but have meaning and purpose and fulfillment in this life, you have to have a relationship with him. And that that is one of the unique things about Christianity that it is it's predicated on a personal relationship, uh, connectedness, yieldedness, intimacy. But when the Bible says believe on Jesus, it's much more than a mental acknowledgement of a fact. Right. It's a personal, absolute, tangible reality 
in your heart, your soul, your life. And, and it, all goes, back to, this, it oh, all goes back to faith. I'm, I mean, yeah. uh, but we have to put faith in any document that we read, even if it's a science book or an article about COVID or a report about the safety of a vaccine. We have to put faith in, in what, we're, what we're reading, and then we have to put faith in that entity, that invisible entity that we're calling God. And which leads to the question, the $6 million question is, how do we know that Jesus is who he claims to be? And what do you say to anyone listening to this program who would say that there's no proof the man uh, from Nazareth called Jesus ever existed? Oh, my word. Well, let me just say this, that um, the question of did a man from Nazareth named Jesus even exist? I mean, you might read about that on some blog site or something Mm -hmm. like that, but no credible historian, no professional historian. Right would ever publicly say that Jesus didn't exist. For instance... They try. People still try to say that. It's crazy because there's extra biblical... But but only people that are absolutely ignorant about what's called historiography. Mm -hmm. Now, historiography is how we know about the past. And there are what are called the, the canons of history, which is really the methodology by which professional historians adjudicate did something happen or not happen. Let me quote one of my heroes, Will Durant. Will Durant is one of the greatest historians in history. He spent 50 years on one project. Uh, he wrote The History of Civilization with his, he and his wife, Ariel. And Will Durant was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And um, his work, uh, The History of Civilization, has been called one of the most important works of history in all of history. And Will Durant said this, that if we disregard the life of Jesus, then we have to also throw out, he said, 100 other ancient figures, Hammurabi, David, Socrates, that must also fade into legend if we disregard Jesus. Also, I could name other names like uh, Arnold Toynbee that would concur, uh, Richard Unwin of Cambridge, you know, um, Mortimer Adler, editor of Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the most literate men of the 20th century. You know, all of these guys ultimately became believers because they said, look, we've got way more evidence for for Jesus than for Julius Caesar. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Heraclitus, the great figures of the ancient world that we know in just one or two or three documents. Yeah. It's estimated that everything we know about the ancient world, say, you know, pre-second century, everything we know about the, the people of the ancient world could fit on a, on a bookshelf with the bookends 36 inches apart. Isn't that amazing? And yet, everything we know about Jesus Christ comes to us from nearly a million ancient sources or references, eyewitness accounts. It's just amazing. And so uh, if we're going to say that any knowledge of the past is possible, then we've got to acknowledge the person from the past for whom we have the most evidence, and that's Jesus Christ. Well, Alex, we are out of time. There was so much more we wanted to go over, but uh, we'll reserve that for next time. God bless you, sir. Thanks for being with us. God bless you guys. Thanks. 
Our guest today on Licensed to Parent has been Alex McFarland. You can connect with Alex at his website, alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. Thanks for listening to Licensed to Parent. Licensed to Parent is an extension of Shepherds Hill Academy, our year-long Christ-centered, wilderness-based residential program for troubled teens. If your teen is in need of help, contact us through our website, licensedyourparent.org, and we will assist you in any way that we can. You know, it's the new year, and your calendar should read January 2023. And here at Shepherds Hill, the second half of the school year is back in full swing. Thank you for how you have come alongside of us and cheered us on through your prayers and your financial gifts. Your help in 2022 is giving us a great start in 2023, and we are so grateful for you. You are helping to change the next generation. Thanks to our team today for making it all possible. Daniel Fazina helps with guest relations. Our producer is Rich Rosel. Carl Peets is our technical producer. For Trace Embry, I'm Michelle Hill, inviting you to join us again next time to renew your license to parent. And remember, folks, if you don't train your children, somebody else will. God bless you. See you next time.